0: It's good to be with you all. Um, my best friend told me this week that his wife was driving on the northwest side, and she saw a church uh, with a sign that said, Guest Speaker Nick Davis, on the outside. And uh, and I told him, well, the attendance will probably be pretty light this week then. So, But for those of you who did come, it's good to see you all. Um, yeah, a little about me, I just finished up at Westminster Seminary in California. I graduated there. Um, and even more importantly, my wife, Janet, is here with me. And she's eight months pregnant. So a lot of big changes are happening. And we just moved to Phoenix to be back in Arizona. This is where we want to be. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm up there helping with an Anglican church plant, actually, working bivocationally at an electrical supply store. Uh, so, a very eclectic mix, if you will. Uh, but we're hoping to get ordained and trained in church planning and then, Lord willing, come back to Tucson and plant a church here. So, yeah, so it's good to be back here in uh, Tucson. I'm originally from Benson. Uh, so, uh, my wife, Janet's family, is from here and our parents are all here. So, we hope to get back. Uh, but enough of that, let's get into our texts. If you'll turn with me to John two, our text today is John one or John two one through eleven, and let's stand as we read the word from the Lord. So this is John two, verse one through eleven. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You may be seated, and let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning grant that we may such wise mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we seem to know, almost instinctively, that times we're celebrating... Are only fitting with a celebratory meal. Uh, when I recently graduated, my parents came over, and uh, we had a real southwestern uh, reception for my graduation. We had green chili chicken, and we brought uh, they brought tortillas from La Mesa tortillas, which I think are probably the best tortillas in the world. Um, and so we we were you know kind of re inoculated into living in Arizona. So that was nice, but. Uh, you can imagine uh, going to one of these moments, whether it's a graduation, or a birthday, or a wedding, and what it would be like if there wasn't a celebratory meal. I mean, can you imagine if you went to a wedding, and after the ceremony, the bride and the groom looked at you and said, well, that's it, uh, we'll see you guys later. You'd be a little upset, you'd be kind of indignant, you would think, you know, we brought a gift uh, we came a long ways. Uh, we're, gonna, we're not leaving here until we get some cake, right? Uh, that's kind of how it goes. Uh, but similarly, as these situations require good food, they also require good drinks, right? Uh, you don't usually have water at these things, you know? And it can be something as simple as uh, what you drink with your pancakes in the morning, you know? Having a good cup of coffee. Or maybe you go on a... A mid-morning hike, and then you go to Ege's afterwards, right? Something only all of you know about. Uh, But whatever it is, one of the things that this text is getting us to see today is that a reason to celebrate is directly connected with celebratory wine. And the main thing we're going to see here is that at the proper time, the Lamb of God is pouring out celebratory wine for us. That's the main thing we'll see. And we see this, first of all, in our first point. Uh, We see a wedding and the problem of not having any wine. So let me first set the stage for you. This account of the wedding at Cana is in uh, this portion in John's Gospel, right after we have been in the prologue. And in the prologue, we saw a number of important things. We saw how the eternal word has become flesh up to this declaration that true grace comes through Jesus Christ rather than through Moses. And then right after this prologue, we jump into a recounting of days by uh, John the Evangelist. You see, uh, it's similar to the way you would recount a wedding. Right? You know, on the first day we had the bachelor party or the bachelorette party. On the second day we had the rehearsal dinner. And on the third day we had the wedding itself. Well, in John's Gospel, in chapter 1, we see on the first day, in verses 19 through 28, the testimony of John the Baptist, in which he declares that he is not the prophet, nor is he Elijah, but he is one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. Then in day 2, in 29-34, through John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he also is written that the Spirit of the Lord descends on Jesus and remains on him, meaning that he is the Son of God, and he is the one who is anointed to be the Messiah of God. Then on day three, in verse 35 through 42, Jesus is again identified as the Son of God, and he begins to draw his disciples, his disciples who believe they have found the Messiah. And then on day four, Jesus calls Nathanael from under a fig tree, and he tells him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so the main thing that I want us to get from this series of days, the main way they set up what is happening here in John 2 is that this idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God, which is stated in 29 and also in verse 36, uh, couches uh, what is said about Him in 33 and 34, that He is the Anointed One of God, that He is the Messiah. You see, because... By placing the Lamb of God on both sides of the fact that He is the Messiah, it is giving a sense of direction to what Him being the Messiah is all about. It gives Him a sense of where we are going in the Gospel, and it gives us a sense of direction where we are going in our account today. So keep that in the back of your mind that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Because now we are on the third day or the day after tomorrow, or meaning that this is day six in this series of days. And so it is connected. And so that's the first thing I want you to have in mind as we set the stage here. And the second second thing is this, that we have a wedding. And this wedding is not quite like our weddings, uh, because weddings in a Jewish culture would have been a week long. Uh, I don't know if you can imagine paying for that with the way we do (laughs) weddings today, Uh, but they were about a week long, and a lot of care was given to make sure there was enough food and drink for this week-long celebration. It's kind of like if you go to a wedding, and an open bar is provided, right? Now, this is not a scene of drunkenness or a scene of gluttony, but it is nevertheless also not a scene of restraint, You know, if first century Jews were interested in dieting, this would be their cheat day or their cheat week, right? This would be like what we do during the holidays, right? This is a time of celebration. It's a time of joy. It's a time where restrictions are kind of loosened a little bit so we can have some fun. And so that is what we have in mind, that this is a wedding scene. And it's interesting that this is what Jesus does as he calls his disciples, See, the very first thing he does is he goes to a wedding. Now, this must have shocked his disciples because they believe they have just found the Messiah and they're right. And yet what they are doing, the very first thing of importance, is going to a wedding. That doesn't sound like what you would expect to happen. But this is worth noting if you are ever tempted to believe that God is not the giver of joy if you are ever tempted to believe that God is the source of all that is good in this creation, if you've ever thought that God the Father is a heavenly version of Ebenezer Scrooge, you see, whenever you believe deep down that real hope, true life, goodness, and beauty are all things that have nothing to do with God, you need to be reminded that the Lamb of God began His ministry with a wedding. Or as James one 16 through 16-17 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So I want to ask you, have you ever thought that God uses the gifts that he gives us to show us his character. That he uses the things in our lives to show us his goodness, to show us his common grace, to show us his love, not in a way that is saving, because that's only through Jesus, but nevertheless, what he has created is a way of demonstrating who he is. Have you ever thought that the joy you experience when you visit the grandchildren is a picture of who God is? Have you ever thought about the joy of being with friends or even you know taking a walk in the early evening after a monsoon rain and you see the beauty and you see uh, the goodness of this creation? Have you ever thought that this is a way that we can love God by enjoying these things in thankfulness? As 1 Timothy 4.4 4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so this is the scene that we have as we get into our text. We have a scene of joy, a scene of happiness, a scene of wedding festivities. Wine is flowing, food is being passed around, celebration, friends, family, hope, For the future, hope for children. All these things are happening. And on top of all of that, the Creator and Redeemer of the world has blessed it and given it with His presence. That is the background to our text. But we have a problem in verse 3. We're out of wine. We're out of wine. Mary comes to Jesus and tells them, They have no wine. Now, running out of wine at such a time would certainly be problematic. It would cause some embarrassment for the host. It would cause, uh, as you can imagine, some disappointment for the guests. Uh, But we need to ask ourselves, is the problem here really something as simple that we can fix in our modern times with a trip to the grocery store or a trip to BevMo, right? (laughs) I mean, certainly something deeper is happening here. And it is. And we see that in Jesus' response in verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. You see, this verse, or this phrase, excuse me, is common in John's gospel. It happens in chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. When Jesus' earthly brothers want him to do signs openly because, as verse 5 says, not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus responds by saying that he will not do the signs they ask because his time has not yet fully come. Or as it says later in 7, in verse 20, and in 820, uh, when Jesus is upsetting the religious leaders and they are seeking to arrest him, they are not able to because his hour had not yet come. You see, this time or hour is the time when Jesus will be revealed in his messianic glory. And that is why uh, this is necessary for the supplication of new wine. You see, that is also why uh, we have a problem as well. There's something of more importance happening here uh, with this wine situation. That we can see in this that we too are out of wine and in desperate need for Jesus' hour of messianic glory. Now you may be wondering, we're out of wine. What are you talking about? Well, you see, in the Old Testament, lacking wine is a sign of God's judgment. And we see this particularly in Deuteronomy 28:45 through51. Where particularly in verse 45 the Lord tells His people Israel that all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed. And because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that He has commanded you. What is one of these curses that is laid out for them? Well, it says that the nation the Lord is going to allow to pillage Israel in verse 51, shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil. You see, wine is a picture of joy. And it's a picture of God's blessing. And because of Israel's sin and ours, we are out of wine. And I want to ask you if you feel that. I mean, don't you feel the weight of sin? I'm not asking you if your cupboard is full. But don't you feel that sense of gloom, that sense of bitterness, of fear, of sorrow, because of the weight of sin as it bears upon us? You can identify with the confession of Psalm 32.10, which says, For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. And my bones waste away. You see, we all experience both the sense and the reality of being in wrong relationship with God. We experience the reality that, uh, or that sense at least, that He doesn't love me. How could God ever embrace a sinner like me? How could Jesus ever pour a glass of celebratory wine for someone like me who is so far gone. You see, this is the sense that we have. The reality of being a sinner disconnected from God in wrong relationship with Him and with others. Think about this. Think about that friend that you just can't forgive. You used to be so close. And now bitterness has eaten away at your relationship. You're not going to be You know, having a drink with them anytime soon. Or having a meal with them. Or think about the problems with your spouse. It's been so long since a date even seemed like a possibility. And add to that the weight of living in a fallen world. Living in a world where sin is a reality, where suffering is a reality, where we feel the weight of evil all around us, of injustice, of unrighteousness, of falsehoods all around. And we say like the psalmist in Psalm 88:18, to God, You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. See, any way of celebrating to you seems like such a joke. Why would I go to a party? Why would I talk of such things? To be reminded of how absent they are in my life? Not a chance. You see, because of the sin in our lives and the sin in our world, we are constantly living under the sense that we are out of wine, that we are out of a reason to celebrate. It is all around us. And again, when Jesus connects the supplying of wine to His messianic hour, He is showing us that the problem and the solution are much deeper than keeping up with Jewish social norms. He's showing us that unless his hour of messianic glory comes, sinful, guilty, shame-filled folks like you and me are out of wine. We're out of a reason to celebrate. Thankfully, we come to our second point that Jesus gives wine abundantly. We see this in verse 6 and 7. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. You see, these stone jars are particularly useful uh, for holding water for purification because... Uh, jars that are made out of clay would have to be broken according to the ceremonial law of Moses. So these ones are essentially reusable. And the fact that the household had such stone water jars, a servants and even a head servant or a master of the feast shows that this uh, is a wedding of great wealth. And therefore there's a lot of people and hence we have the 120 to 180 gallons of the really good stuff. 120 to 180 gallons of water, right? And that is how much is needed for this cleansing. But I want you to notice what Jesus does next. He commands them to fill the jars to the brim. To fill them up to the point where no more water is possible. And this is interesting because he does not break the jars. Nor does he say they are unimportant or or not essential. But he actually brings about this wine of blessing by filling the jars up to the brim. You see, there are no magical tricks here. There's nothing like that. But it's almost as if, in the very act of filling the jars to the brim, the celebratory wine is created by Jesus. And then in verse 8, he says, Now draw some out. Now it's interesting that he uses this word, draw out. Because in the Greek, this is the word or the verb that is usually used for drawing water out of a well. And so, we must ask ourselves, why the command to draw here? Well, the reason is, is because he is connecting the metaphor. He is saying that if you want to experience the cup of blessing, you must go to the well. Well you must go to the one who in John 4 gives living water. Or as Jesus said in John seven thirty-seven through 38 on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, the well of life that you need is also the one who provides abundant wine for you. And he does this by filling or fulfilling the jars of the law. He does this in your place. And so because he has filled the jars of the law in your place, to the brim in its place, you find a never-ending source of celebratory wine. That is what you get instead or as romans 5:20 20 through 21 says it now the law came in to increase the trespass but where sin increased grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through jesus christ our lord this is abundant wine living or as he says in john 10:10 10, 10, jesus speaking that the thief comes only to steal to kill and to destroy but I have come that you might have life and that you would have it abundantly. That is what he is bringing. And this leads to my third point, that this wine is for you. 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Notice that it's not just about the quantity of wine, as if this is just the cheap stuff, but it's also the quality of wine. This is the really good stuff. And we see here that Jesus gives not just in a Uh, you know, great way as in quantity, but also quality. And we are reminded that wine is again a source of joy, which we see in Psalm 104, verse 14 through 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. We see in verse 11, that this is the first of his signs. And that's important, the first of his signs. You see, the word that John uses here is not the expected word for first, which is first in a series like first, second, third. But in the Greek here, John is using the word for beginning, which has a more prominent sense. You see, one commentator says this, the use of beginning here suggests that the Canaan miracle is not merely the first in a sequence of signs, but it is the archetype or blueprint of all the signs, which declare the glory of the crucified word and are intended to elicit faith. The point of the sign is the point of all of the signs. That is, this sign is giving us a picture of what the kingdom of God itself is like. That is what is doing, and so because uh, because of this, that means this sign is not just a one off sign right This is not just some cool thing that Jesus did, but it actually is a picture of what the kingdom of God itself is like, and it means that it is a picture of what the grace of God towards you is like as well that is because Jesus is the Lamb of God, because He is the one who takes away the sins of the world, because He fulfills the law on your behalf, He is the one who brings in this abundant kingdom. It's the one we heard of in our reading. In Isaiah 25, particularly 6, 8-9, through 9, which say this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. So two things to bring this all together in conclusion. First, we saw at the beginning that it was essential for Jesus's hour of Messianic glory to come. So we need to ask, when does this ultimately happen? What will we see when it happens in John? It's in John 12, 27, and 32 through 33. When Jesus says this now is my soul troubled and what shall I say father save me from this hour but for this purpose I have come to this hour and I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. You see Jesus is being lifted up on the cross is that messianic glory of his exaltation. Because He is the Lamb of God, this is how He is exalted. He is exalted in His saving of sinners like you and me. He is exalted in His saving of those who are filled with guilt, filled with shame, filled with all kinds of sin, by drawing them to Himself in His exaltation on the cross. That is how He does it. And that is why the messianic hour of celebratory wine it comes to us. It comes to us in the cross of Jesus. It comes to us in that death, in that shedding of His blood. And secondly, we see this, that because this all comes together in Jesus being the Lamb of God, it means that He is the one who has filled the law to the fullest. And because He has filled the law to the fullest, that means that His blood is our celebratory wine. It is our communion wine. It is, as 1 Corinthians ten sixteen says, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You see, the fact that Jesus' messianic glory is centered on His work on the cross. It means that this abundant wine comes to you freely. It flows to you freely. It means that you yourself have a seat at the table in His kingdom. It means that without cost, as we read, without price, this comes to you freely. This bread and wine is the kingly meal that this king is preparing for his guests. And He is preparing it for the least and lowly sinners like you and like me. And so because this is true, you can come to Him today with your empty cup. In fact, coming to Him empty is the only way to come to Him. Not with your cheap wine of your own works, but only for His abundant wine of everything that He can give. Everything that He has earned everything that He has done on your behalf and shed in His blood. That because of Jesus, because He is the Lamb of God, because in death He has triumphed over death and given us the power of the resurrection, because He has overcome all of your fear, all of your distress, all of your sin, because He has nailed it to the cross and poured out His wine, you can say, no matter what your suffering, no matter what your sin, the words of Psalm 23.5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We are amazed that Your Son uh, would do such a thing as this, that He would humble Himself to become one of us, that He would live the life that we cannot live, as we like to say, that He would die the death that we deserved, and that He would raise victoriously over all sin, over all death, and even the condemnation of the law that we deserve. We ask, Lord, that though we as your people in this life uh, so often uh, are crushed on every side, as the Apostle says, though we so often are perplexed, though we so often are troubled, we ask that in the midst of all that we would see your goodness and your grace. Yes, that we would see them in all that you have created and all the ways you have blessed us but chiefly in your Son, the ultimate gift that we have received by His work. We ask that you would continue by your Spirit to make this more and more real to us, that we would know more and more that it is uh, for us, that this work of Jesus, this celebratory wine, is not just for the person next to us, though it is, but that it is actually for us ourselves. And that because of it, that we would have great joy. And that this joy would mark this congregation. And that this joy of Your salvation would be to those around us salt and light. In Jesus' name, Amen.